Hello and welcome to Paincast, conversations on pain and physiotherapy. This podcast is brought to you by the Pain Science Division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. I'm Tiffany, a physiotherapy student at the University of Toronto. Today we are honoured to have two guests joining us, Jack Miller and Jim Millard. Jack is a senior editor of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association's Orthopedic Journal, executive member of the Orthopedic Division, the president of the Canadian Academy of Manipulative Physical Therapy, member of the CPA Specialization Accreditation Committee, and was a founding member of the Mulligan Concept Teachers Association. Jack has presented at conferences internationally, published research articles and multiple textbook chapters, and taught high-level, evidence-based manual therapy courses internationally since 1990. Jack works clinically as an advanced practice consultant, triaging patients for imaging, laboratory investigations, medical interventions, and surgery. Jim is the National Director of Clinical Training and Development at CBI Health. Jim has been a clinician for over 30 years and has been teaching the Mulligan concept in Canada since 2007. He is passionate about communication and storytelling in healthcare and also teaches clinical relationship building. The writing and study of stories and poetry build empathy and narrative competence to not only get to know ourselves, but to also meet others where they truly are. Jim utilizes poetry to reflect upon the uncertainty and mystery of being a clinician. He released his first book of poetry, Curiosity, The Heart of Being, in 2022. The Mulligan Concept, or Mobilization with Movement, MWM, is an approach to manual therapy that combines active movement, pain neuroscience, patient autonomy, and hands-on mobilization. In this episode, we discuss the Mulligan Concepts philosophies, therapeutic effects, and practical considerations. Enjoy! Hi Jack and Jim, thank you so much for spending time to talk about Mulligan or movement with mobilization with me. How are you guys doing? Doing well, thank you Tiffany. Thanks for the opportunity to be here with you and your listeners. Amazing, it's a pleasure and honor to have both of you. Can you introduce who you are, what are you doing, and what a typical week looks like for you? We can start with Jack. Hello, everybody. My name is Jack Miller. I currently work in advanced practice. So I see patients that have primarily spinal pain, also peripheral problems that have been sent to interventionalists, um, interventional radiologists, physiatrists. And so I screen the patients, triage them, and make sure that they're appropriate and make recommendations for further interventions, uh, investigations. So I order the imaging labs, make sure the patients are fully worked up and then make rec specific recommendations, whether it might be um, say a, a right C3, four facet joint or a trans uh, laminar um, epidural or an interbursal injection into um, the subacromial uh, region. So that's my primary job, but also most of the time also sending the patient back out into the community and saying that now that we've done this to help with your pain, then it's time to get moving. So that's what I primarily do now. Mm -hmm. And Jim? I'm currently the, the National Director of Training and Development for CBI Health. So I oversee kind of all the allied health training and development on the clinical side. 
and I'll still get into clinics and coach clinicians, see patients. And uh, so it's, uh, it's rewarding as I'm slowly kind of winding down. How are you two connected with the Mulligan concept? Well, I better let Jack take this one, but uh, let's just say he was there from the beginning and I was in the right place at the right time. So I, I did my training here in Canada at U of T. And uh, when I finished that, I, I want to continue the journey, as they say. So I started taking the what was then the orthopedic divisions AB system, now called the level system. Uh, I sat down one day and did the math and realized it's going to take like, you know, eight years to get to where I want to be. So I want to speed up the process. So I decided to take Jeff Maitland's manual therapy program in Adelaide, Australia. And uh, believe it or not, yes, I, I bought a one-way ticket to Australia and, and I'm sitting on the plane and uh, flying there and uh, the plane stops on its way to Australia at this place called New Zealand. Uh, never heard of it, knew nothing about it, but I thought, hey, I, I got some time. So I got off the plane. I was going to spend about six weeks, a little bit of a holiday before I went on to Australia, back to school. So I was six weeks. Six years later, I left, along with a New Zealand wife, New Zealand baby. And um, I was the first non-New Zealander to do the uh, Auckland University of Technology's Diploma of Manipulative Therapy. And uh, at that time, Brian Mulligan and Robin McKenzie were the uh, co-chairs of the Education Committee. So I took my McKenzie training in New Zealand from McKenzie and my Mulligan trainings from Brian Mulligan. And dragged my New Zealand wife back to Canada, to this place she still calls a frozen wasteland, and lived in London, Ontario, and met Jim uh, a few years later. And I'll let him tell his story. Oh, actually, I Jack came and did a lecture at Western in my last year in the late 80s, well, early 90s. And uh, there were no private clinics. He was just, just starting out. And incidentally, I met Jack when he first came here because I was a patient in the clinic where he worked, um, he wasn't my therapist, but literally I worked at the hospital for a year. There were no real private practice jobs and we would do rotations in, in those days. You couldn't get an ortho job. You needed to earn a neuro job and, um, and same with chest therapy. And, and so I was in a rotating position. I was in and walked into a Tim Horton donuts, uh, on, uh, on Oxford in London. And there was Jack. And I thought, Oh, there was that guy that gave the lecture geez, I should go and talk to him. But I was a shy guy. I went out, got in my car, started to drive away. And I said, oh, to hell with it. I'm going to go back in and, and talk to him. And I went back in and he offered me a job and the rest is history. So never leave Tim, Tim Horton Donuts empty-handed, I think is the moral of the story. 30 years later, we're uh, still having fun. 33 years later. So you two are involved with training Mulligan teachers. Is that correct? Well, the um, Mulligan Concept Teachers Association is an international body. Uh, there's now like something like 55, 56 uh, teachers internationally, um, Europe, Asia, North America, Australia, Australasia. So it's an accreditation program to make sure that, you know, people that are going to be um, putting forward the uh, the concept have met a, um, a high standard. Uh, we have a very formalized examination process. The passing grade is 90%, no joke. And so, so you know, we, we've all both gone through that and we, we, we examine and, and train teachers. But, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, we, we provide post-professional training for physiotherapists in Canada and the Caribbean in the Mulligan concept. And, you know, and we're fully credited by that body to do so. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's great, you know, one of our first goals of this Mulligan Teachers Association was to, quote, put ourselves out of business in the sense of getting this out into schools and, you know, and so that it is now more widely accepted. And, and we certainly have achieved that goal uh, in many ways, um, but we're still hanging around to try to elevate the, the skill set 
but, but more importantly, really to help elevate the clinical reasoning and thinking behind it, because it, it is not the same as, quote, traditional manual therapy. So that, that's, that's what we do is, is, is deliver post-professional training, mainly in Canada, but then uh, in the wintertime, um, try to sneak in one Caribbean course as well on the way. Looks like I've got the right guys on the podcast to talk about this topic. Absolutely. So we've talked about mulligan for many times. Can you introduce this concept to our audience? Well, the, the mulligan concept, named after Brian Mulligan, who Jack kind of did his training with live, who was a New Zealand physio that, um, you know, with Robin McKenzie and Stanley Paris and uh, just a, a group in the 60s and 70s in New Zealand, just started to think outside the box. And I know we're going to talk about some traditional Maitland therapy from a Canadian perspective, which is intertwined with Kaltenborn. Mulgan was very influenced by, by Kaltenborn and started to come up with a concept where he would combine an accessory mobilization with physiological movement and started to get really great outcomes with changing pain, changing movement with pain rapidly right um and this is we're, we're on the pain science podcast in the 70s we weren't talking neurophysiology very much so the perspective was all biomechanical and trying to explain it um kind of made it maybe let us down a little bit of a side path but really rapid changes a lot of them are tapping into neurophysiology we'll talk about that today and um and i think brian after a while was in charge of the program Jack took in New Zealand, the manual therapy program, and then started to then, just like McKenzie, but on a bit of a different avenue, started to kind of play with his own techniques and formalize them into a system based on like upper quadrant and lower quadrant, and basically started to teach courses all over the world around that system. And here we are today, you know, Jack, 30 years later, basically, almost from 40 years, I We've got Jack's notes from school where Brian started to introduce the concept. It's pretty amazing. I should give some of them back to you too. Yeah, so we're 40 years later with the formal teachers group started in, I want to say, 1995. So we're almost 30 years into that. Why are you passionate about the Mulligan concept? For me, I think the reason I enjoy using it when, when appropriate, first of all, it, it's, it's not always appropriate. That's the first thing. But when appropriate, as Jim alluded to, is, is the potential for a very rapid change in, in function, but also in pain associated with function. And it's the, I think to me, it's really the ability to demonstrate to the patient that they have the capacity to perform activities that they would normally be fearful of because of pain generation and turn them from movement avoiders in, into movement and function optimists where that you can demonstrate to them, look, it's, you know, the patient says, I, I, I can't turn my neck to the right. Oh, it hurts to turn my neck to the right. And, and if you can demonstrate to them right there in the clinic with a, a very gentle mobilization that they now can turn their neck fully to the right without pain, then they realize, well, they don't have a tumor and they don't have this disease. And then, then they have, we believe, much greater potential than to take on the responsibility to be able to move their neck to the right and to do that at home and carry on an ongoing basis. So it's taking the impaired activity, the painfully impaired activity, and literally turning it into the treatment by abolishing the pain during the process. And then also having durability afterwards, longevity of that 
symptomatic relief and functional improvement concurrently. It's not just, I make you feel good or I make you move good. It's we do them both at the same time. We're showing you, you can do this activity and not be fearful of it and not avoid it. And therefore take down that fear avoidance and make them, as I say, function optimus. It sounds like a very empowering way. I think we do therapy with patients, not on or to patients. And that to me is the beauty. It's it's the bridge between, you know, passive and active and, and between accessory motion and physiological. I'll even say it's kind of the bridge between manual therapy and, and pain science. And some of that will come out. So I think we're passionate because it's it gives the clients the locus of control. And with that opens up, I think, just a whole different door into the possibility of of change and symptom modification. I think Jim's point there about the locus of control is really key. I see a lot of the interventions that we have traditionally used, again, where we do things on people and the patient is essentially a passenger on the bus. Sure, they could reach up and pull the cord and say, I wanna get off. But, but they don't get to go up to the driver and say, hey, excuse me, would you mind taking a detour up Elm Street and then to hanging a left over there? Uh, no, the, the, the passenger doesn't get to direct the care. They just simply receive it or, or choose not to. In this particular approach, uh, the passenger is actually driving the bus and, and makes the decisions about how to proceed further. Do we go faster, slower, turn right or turn left? based on real-time symptom uh, modification. To me, I think that's one of the reasons I find it really exciting is that that transference of that locus of control from I, the fixer, to I, the guide with the patient who really determines uh, the pathway that we're going to take here. Uh, That's, to me, one of the key elements of it. And it is how what we would think of the New Zealand system of patient management is about, you know, the McKenzie system is based totally on the, what the patient tells you. And at the same time, the mulligan approach is based totally on what the patient tells you. That is disempowering to the clinician, which is good because it's about time that we, we disempowered ourselves and re-empowered the patient is how I approach it. For those who have never seen mulligan, never heard of it, can you provide an example to help our audience visualize how a practitioner applied the mulligan concept? Let's say the patient has a a painful impairment of grip that reproduces lateral elbow pain. Now we could take that and we could give it some sort of a pathoanatomical diagnosis. Uh, We could call it a nickname. We could call it tennis elbow if we wanted to. We could give it something nice and Latin like lateral epicondylalgia. Um, But what we really know is that the patient has lateral elbow pain associated with grip. And that's all we know at a clinical level. Uh, So we might term that in our examination, the client-specific impairment measure. It's it's the activity that reproduces their typical symptom of complaint, and it's functionally impaired. They can't grip fully like they would like to. And the patient wants to be able to grip without pain. We apply a pain-free mobilization. And and this is one of the keys, is that it's pain-free. It's not the the glide or the distraction or the spin, the mobilization that's stiff or restricted or painful like traditional orthopedic manual therapy, nor is it based on the concave convex rule like traditional orthopedic manual therapy. It's based on the patient's real-time symptomatic response. The patient says, well, well, that doesn't hurt. 
Then while maintaining that pain-free accessory mobilization, in this particular case at the elbow, usually a lateral glide of the forearm in relationship to the humerus, we have the patient do the very thing that a moment ago was painfully impaired, grip. Now, if it too is now pain-free and improved in function, increasing grip power without reproducing the pain, we repeat it. We might do several repetitions and we might do it harder and harder and harder. Because at the end of the day, Tiffany, let's be honest with each other. What is physiotherapy all about? Like everything that we do is load modification. You give a person a pair of crutches, you're unloading a structure. You're giving a person resistance exercise, you're loading a structure. And so with repetition and overpressure of the functioning impaired activity, you're applying that load that's, again, pain-free. We might do five, six, seven repetitions, depending on the level of the patient's irritability, but please, not the three sets of 10. Then, after doing a reasonable number, stop, take your hands off, and reevaluate the patient's client-specific impairment measure, the activity that was painfully impaired, in this case, grip. If it's now, again, improved in function and pain-free, move the patient on to self-management. And so th that encapsulates what we do is, is we're using the patient's activity itself as the therapeutic intervention, but using manual therapy to render it pain-free and allow them to be able to perform that activity without symptom reproduction, and therefore, again, take down that fear and their avoidance, and now have them engage that functional barrier. What is the reasoning behind the lateral glide with lateral uh, elbow pain? I try not to hog this too much, but I can say I, I used to hang out at, at, again, I lived in New Zealand for six years and I used to literally hang out at McKenzie's clinic and hang out at Mulligan's clinic and watch them treat patients. And, and watching both of these people, particularly Brian Mulligan in his clinic was like watching a child in a sandbox playing with toys. Well, what if I do this? Well, that doesn't work. What if I do that? Well, that doesn't work. What if I do this? Well, that's a little bit better. What if I do that? What's well, even better still? And it was literally trial and error. So you tell me a good biomechanical, neurophysiological, rational exp explanation why a lateral mobilization of the forearm in relationship to the humerus would render lateral elbow pain associated with grip pain-free, because I have no concept why. And, and if we stop and think of it, you know, aspirin was invented back in the eight, late 1880s. We had no idea how it actually worked from a, from a pharmacological perspective until 1972. Now, did that stop us from using aspirin? No, we investigated, we had, we, and so again, just as <clears throat> McKenzie came up with the disc as a model, Brian Mulligan came up with the idea of maybe there's some sort of bony positional fault, but it's just a model. And just as not many McKenzie teachers nowadays go around talking about the disc, the disc, the disc, it's more uh, about repetitive movements um, and directional preference. The same way, um, with you know, tremendous respect to our, our mentor, Brian Mulligan, we don't tend to stress this concept of some sort of bony positional fault as the underlying source, because then before you know it, people start treating the model instead of the patient. And so again, at this point in time, we take on more of a neurophysiological um, approach. And maybe Jim might like to speak a little bit about that. Yeah, and there's lots of research. I mean, if you go to the brianmulligan.com website, 
we share all the studies and there's a quite a big library and people can kind of dig a little bit deeper onto you know statistical aspect of all that research but on the on the neurophysiological side and especially on the pain side i mean we could probably sit here and talk for hours right and it's descending modulation at the end of the day or descending inhibition is what we're really tapping into um, in a lot of these techniques it's not endorphins Jack knows the research probably better than anyone on the planet. He'll jump in here to uh, to clarify a point if need be. But basically, we are finding that it is just a, a modification and an inhibition pathway that we've been able to tap into via the trial and error and different afferent inputs. I, I like Canadians, so I'll hang my hat on Ron Melzak's neuro matrix kind of pain perception model. And I love it because you've got these cognitive related inputs, right? You've got these sensory inputs, you've got this emotive, or we'll call it that neuro immuno endocrine kind of what runs the computer in the background. And I hate to say it, but if content is king, right? Patient story, what they're coming in with, really from a biomechanical point of view, context is queen. And if you play chess, the queen's the better piece it's still in the context of that patient's life, right? Their past history, what their own cognitive biases are, what their own conditioning is, their own values, that all factors in and it all taps into the neurophysiology of all this. Those sensory signaling, all those afferent inputs that their body communicates with the outside world with, all that taps in. And what we're trying to do is change that output. We're not computers, but literally there's different ways into the nervous system. Traditional therapy with may combine some things, but mostly it's an isolation. We're going to do something on the skin, whether it's touching, whether it's with the needle, we're going to do something to the muscle, whether it's to the Golgi tendon organs or the muscle spindles, right? A stretch and exercise. We're going to do something to the joints, to mechanoreceptors with mobilization, right? And what the, the Mulligan concept does or what mobilization with movement does, it combines those inputs. So sometimes one plus one to the nervous system isn't two, it's eight. And you get these rapid changes. And in the context of that person's belief system, their own confidence, their own self-efficacy, we can, because we're doing it with somebody, it's a whole different, basically, door into that neural matrix. And you see the action programs changed. Can they move better? Are they able to kind of get, get through that pain perception a lot better because you've kind of put these inputs in? So I love it. The neural matrix, to me, just allows me to kind of visualize that. And you, we all know you can take two different people, same accident, same parameters, if you could basically make it exactly the same, those two people are going to come out of that accident absolutely different on um, what got hurt, their pain perception, how they move. And I think with the neural matrix, we can really kind of explain a little bit of how that neurophysiology dances with that communication and what the Mulligan concept allows us to do, I think, is tap into that therapy with somebody as opposed to to somebody and the outputs the results are, are quite good 
I've got a quote that actually Jim gave me. He dug this up and um, I think it just speaks so eloquently. The textbook is Topical Issues in Pain Number 5 by Steve Robson and Louis Gifford out of the UK. And the chapter uh, is from uh, Manual Therapy in the 21st Century. I'll make this quick. Uh, here's the quote. New synaptic learning would be of little use to a patient if we're associated with lying face down on a therapist's couch while mobilizations were performed on their lumbar spine. However, if the patient can see and feel that it's possible to bend forward with no pain and hence start to learn pain-free movement, then this could have enormous functional significance. Experimenting with various mobilization techniques while asking the patient to move can produce better and less painful movements. Some familiar examples of the sorts of techniques can be used include so-called sustained apophyseal glides and mobilizations with movement. Used in the right context, for example, with lots of explanation combined with therapist assistance and reassurance, these types of techniques can sometimes help patients challenge fear or restricted movement. That's just a lovely way of tying this all together. And it's really where I think, again, look at, and obviously I'm a Kiwi file in the sense that I'm married to a Kiwi. I'm a New Zealand citizen, actually. And so one of the New Zealanders that is really taking the charge of this, again, is Peter O'Sullivan, who trained with Mulligan in New Zealand, along with me, and then moved to Australia. And again, if you're really thinking what he's doing with his approach is exactly the same thing. It's giving the patient the confidence that they can bend and move and reducing that fear of activity. He does it by demonstrating the patient's abilities and encouraging them. Um, we may do that with a hands-on technique. And does it really matter uh, if you push control, alt, delete, or alt, delete, control? Does it really matter which order you put it in or which you push harder? You're still doing the same thing. You're resetting that patient's nervous system and then giving them the confidence to be able to perform activity again. So that's, I think, a, a lovely little quote. And again, I shout out to Jim for uh, passing that on to me. Yeah, and shout out to Louis Gifford too. I mean, we lost him too early and probably a lot of viewers don't know who that is, but probably was the first physio pain scientist, if you want to go back to the 70s. And if I was going to give five books, this would be a series, five books to a, to a young therapist or to my young self when I first graduated, if I got to do it over again, Louis Gifford's Aches and Pains series would be in the top three, absolutely. So just to kind of put that out there. And the cognitive functional therapy of the O'Sullivans and that whole group out of Australia, like Jack said, it's just tapping into therapy with a coaching edge. And, and we can even argue Brian Mulligan was one of the first pain scientist physios as well. Just didn't know at the time because we're really tapping into that unique self-efficacy piece. And how do we know from self-determination theory? How do you get to self-efficacy, confidence, competence. It comes through great work out of Forte and Suite out of the University of Ottawa in 2014 with cardiac patients, but it comes out of autonomy support and it comes out of relatedness, empathy. And when you add those two things together, you can tap into intrinsic motivation a whole lot better and the patient can then grasp onto that self-efficacy. And you've got to understand we're applying this to a context. The when of treatment is so important. Oh, Solomon is dealing with people that have failed therapy everywhere else. They're well on in their journey. We might be applying this stuff to someone with a three-day-old injury or on the actual sports field. So I think we still have to apply it all in the context, 
of who that person, that N equals one is right in front of us. But we know that when you can move, and Jack will speak to this better than anybody, what mobilization with movement really does well, it combines assessment and treatment into one thing. So the client, the patient can see and feel that it's working. We don't have to say, let me do this to you. Now stand up. Can you turn your neck better? No, they can see it while we're doing it. They can feel it. And that taps into buying in, seeing change, and then following through. That taps into intrinsic motivation, huge. I'll just build on that because, again, you know, when I first came back from New Zealand and started trying to demonstrate and show and share some of these things that I've learned there, uh, it was a, a real challenge. Nowadays, a lot of these techniques are being shown in entry to practice programs and other post-professional courses, which is wonderful. We encourage that. The problem is it's being taught in the context of traditional orthopedic manual therapy clinical reasoning, which is built around the idea of the stiff joint. Oh, you're stiff. Oh, it's tight. Oh, it's restricted. And therefore, you're going to do your mobilization into the direction that's stiff and tight and restricted and usually painful. And if you do that, if you use that thinking process, these techniques fail. You might be doing the right thing, but you're using the wrong thinking system. The other big thing that Jim touched on that's different than, quote, traditional orthopedic manual therapy, particularly the Maitland system, which is wonderful. But the Maitland system, again, is built around this idea of, of what well, the joint is stiff. I need to use a grade three, grade four to stretch out the tightness. Or there's pain. I'm going to use a grade one, grade two for neuromodulation. But I don't know if it's successful until I retest them. So the entire traditional system that we use here in, in Canada it involves a test, treat, retest paradigm. You test the patient. They can't, again, turn the neck to the right. You lay them down, you do something to them, and then you stand them back up, and then you retest them, and oh, gee, it didn't work. Well, now you lay down and you do something different. And then you stand them back up, and gee, you still can't turn to the right. And so you're working essentially deaf. You have no idea if what you're doing is going to be helpful to the patient or not until you stand them back up. One of the real great benefits of mobilizations with movement is that it moves from that test, treat, retest paradigm into a test test and treat, retest paradigm. So I know I'm in the right place, doing the right thing in the right direction with the right grade while I'm doing it. How? Symptom abolition. Because all these techniques are always pain-free. And so this is what I think really speeds the process up. So rather than a, a random series of, well, let's try this, well, that didn't work. Let's try that, well, that didn't work. Let's try something else. You know, your average time to decide whether or not the patient is going to respond to MWMs is somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 30 seconds. How, because again, you're looking for that immediate change in pain and, and Brian, God love him. He, he loves all these acronyms, NAGs and and, and, and snags and bags and who else. Um, and one of his, his favorite acronyms is PILL. It's pain-free, it's instantaneous, and it's long-lasting. And I think that instantaneous portion of it is what gets me excited because the patient, again, can see and feel the fact that they can now turn their neck, lift their arm, grip their hand while you're doing the technique right there and then. And so you know, again, that the technique is indicated by that immediate symptomatic response. 
Yeah, it's been very interesting listening to the two of you explain Mulligan and for reference, MWM stands for Mobilization with Movements. We might right. use that acronym again. Um, and it's very interesting to see the connection between this concept and Peter Sullivan's cognitive functional therapy. For those who don't know much about CFT, cognitive functional therapy, please uh, listen to episode number six. It's really, really insightful. Dr. Mark Hancock is from the Peter O'Sullivan Research Group on CFT. And I, I really love the aspect of the patient empowerment and working with patients rather than on patient element of MWM. But couldn't one argue that because you need to put your hands on to demonstrate that they can move without pain, let's say you, you need to apply that gliding force for that movement to be pain-free, therefore, in a way compared to what let's say for example cft would do which is to patient do it on their own they find it pain-free in a way less empowering than that because the hands-on component is still needed to be there yeah i don't i think sometimes it's apples to oranges because it's the when of treatment right it's like saying i've got a fractured knee and i just came out of a cast of course, you want me to do my own stuff eventually, but at first it doesn't move and, and I can't turn it on. Um, so in 33 years, I never disabled anyone with manual therapy because it's it's a stop on the way. It's not a long term thing. It's uh, get things going. And once they can see and do it for themselves, they do it for themselves. They don't need me. So it's. Um, I think we can get caught up in saying hands off, hands on, and and let be let be honest. I've watched that pendulum, and um, and it's always that person in front of you. And of course, we wouldn't put hands on anyone if we don't need to. That there's no point. Um, and Jack probably has been practicing cognitive functional therapy since 1980. Let's be honest, and and myself since 1990. So I get a little bit of passionate because. The world of manual therapy is is disabling and it's not a good thing. I don't know anyone who does that in isolation or I don't know any therapist that I've ever worked with or trained that does ultrasound on everybody. I think it's it's doing the right thing at the right time for the right person. And you could, in one or two visits, get someone to a point where they would take four weeks to do it on their own. So I don't think we lose in the end by trying to speed that up. And again, we're not talking about putting hands on people that have been everywhere else and had, you know, the story of victim placed upon them. And I really want to talk to that quickly because I'm passionate about it. We, me included, Jack, all of us at some point in our careers have probably put people in a bad position. And we put people in what we I would call the dreaded drama triangle coined by Cartman, a, a psychologist in the 60s, where the patient's this victim. We were trained to come out of school to fix them. I had an Indiana Jones fedora and a whip, right? And the, the problem was not a herniated disc. It was a persecutor. And we were out there to fix them. And if I couldn't help them, I'd give them to Jack because he had better hands than me. And, and we've moved away from that. And now we know from you know, the intrinsic motivation. And we know from just good social science on motivation, people want autonomy, right? And they want to be part of a team. Well, what does every team have? A good coach. 
Well, we go from fixer to coach. I get my grandfather's hat on. The client, the patient goes from victim to creator because if you have autonomy, you can create from it. And we take the persecutor and flip it into a challenger like any good hero's journey Disney story. And we put the client as the hero in their own journey. We can do that with mobilization, with movement. We can do that with physiotherapy. We're all physiotherapists. And the quicker we can make the client from victim to creator, that's empowerment. And to work alongside Jack since 1990, he does that day one with hands-on. And he doesn't stay hands-on. As soon as the patient can do it themselves, they're the creator. We're not going to keep them in that victim mindset. And I think we often think that we tell stories, but often our stories tell us. And we get these clients coming to us and they've got 10 different stories coming to us. And our job as a physio is to meet them where they are, not meet them where we want them to be. We have to meet them where they are. And that's empathy. And that's the the biggest thing that they want. And it's the number one missed response for all of us as clinicians too. And it's this connection piece. And manual therapy and touch is a very powerful connector. It's a very powerful trust booster. And change only happens at the speed of trust. And it is a tool in the right context where you can really get there a lot quicker. And it's two stories. It's their story and our story confluencing into a new story. And I would have everyone look up narrative medicine and the work of John Lawner and the work out of Columbia University on that. And it's just brilliant. And the best clinicians out there are storytellers. And they know how to confluence their own biases and beliefs with the client's context and story and create a new story that you walk together through. And I know I went on a tangent there, but um, that's cognitive functional therapy, basically. And to put your hands on someone, it might just be guiding them, right? Um, It's not inherently all biomechanical. All this is neurophysiology, and um, it really taps into, I think, the pain science aspect of this as, you know, It's two nervous systems coming together as one. We're not working on someone. We're working with someone. And it changes a whole different dynamic. Hey, Tiffany, have you ever gone to a dentist? Yeah. Did the dental hygienist clean your teeth? Yeah. Did did, did they then tell you you have to come back every night for them to clean your teeth again? Uh, Yeah, every year. No, no, every night. Like every night, you've got to come back every night for them to clean your teeth for you, right? No. So the dental hygienist scaling your teeth didn't make you dependent on them did it well did it make you dependent where you had to go every night no it didn't it what it did is it kick-started the process and got your really clean teeth mm-hmm. and, and i actually believe that it may therefore motivated you to then go home and brush and floss more because you want to keep them that way right mm. and it's the same thing with manual i think manual therapy's gotten a tough ride these days recently because there's this idea that oh if you touch someone you're going to make them dependent can you show me one one randomized double-blind control trial study that demonstrates that manual therapy creates dependency one just just one because there is none out there i've done the research on this okay the lit review it does not now again if done inappropriately of course it could and the come back tomorrow come back tomorrow come back tomorrow is not what we want to start practicing that that is not our profession's model is that it's it's to use short-term interventions to empower the patient to be able to function 
let's continue with the dental analogy. Um, have you ever had a root canal? Nope. Um, if you did, would you want the root canal with or without the anesthetic? With the anesthetic. Oh, so you'd like the dentist to do something to you to make it such that they can then do this other thing without pain. Is that right? Yep. If we therefore can use manual therapy to render an activity pain-free, why not do that? Because it's exactly the same thing as the Novocaine for the dentist. Now, doing just the Novocaine, just giving them the injection for their cracked tooth is going to make them dependent because you haven't changed the cracked tooth. But giving them the injection of the Novocaine to empower you to the dentist to be able to do the root canal, I don't believe creates dependency at all. In fact, it actually lets, the, lets us move the patient forward. And then don't forget to brush and floss, please. Yeah, very cool. You can see how Mulligan or MWM is really putting together pain science, empowerment, coaching, and manual therapy into one. And I remember, Jack, you talked about a very interesting way of conceptualizing Mulligan. You, you had the bridge model, but then there's also the Venn diagram. I forgot what you said at that time. Yeah, I mean, we've used different um, visuals um, over the years, you know, during our teaching. And we've got to give, again, a shout out to um, our one of our European teachers, Francisco Neto, that created this a, a really just a nice graphic. And that is of a Venn diagram with three different circles, one being active movement, active you know, physiological movements that the patient does themselves. The other being manual therapy that we do with the patient. And the other being neural pain science and all intersecting together. And, and then and in the middle of that is I think where Mulligan sits, because it is that intersection of the patient's own efforts, you guiding them through the pain-free movement with your manual therapy, and then using that again to really reinforce the safety and appropriateness of functional activities. And that's that neural pain science side of things. It's, it's that intersection of all three of those to my mind. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about the principles and the theoretical rationales of Mulligan. And we touched a little bit on what Mulligan can do, which is to improve pain, improve function. Um, would you want to elaborate a little more on that and demonstrate a little bit of what the literature has been able to show? Well, as Jim says, like, you know, we've, we've actually done a, well, one of the things that we as a, a group of teachers internationally do is we levy ourselves. We, we all pay into a research fund and, and we're very happy to, to do so. If there's any researchers out there, please do visit bmulligan.com um, where you can apply for our research grant, which we give out on an, a regular basis. I think we've been very lucky as far as being able to attract some higher quality researchers, uh, people like Toby Hall from Earth Australia. Bill Vincenzino from the University of Queensland. And again, we've, we're very proud of the fact that we currently have over 350 peer-reviewed journal articles that are published that you can access, again, through uh, bmulligan.com um, and, and get those. A lot of them are, are, are free access. Um, and again, so we started off with, you know, uh, just this physiotherapist in Wellington, New Zealand, who accidentally found that if, if he did a, a mobilization to a young girl's finger, she couldn't flex her finger and he tried the usual things. Nothing was working. And he, he glid the, the distal segment of the phalanx towards the thumb and that caused pain. He, he glid the, the distal phalanx towards uh, the pinky and that didn't cause pain. And now what motivated that physiotherapist to do the next thing on that day? He has no idea, probably just desperation. Uh, he said, well, look, hey, if I, if I hold your finger in this pain-free glid position, can you bend your finger now? And 
And she says, well, my finger bent. Uh, and, and he, of course, pretends like he knows what he's doing. He says, well, of course. And, and that physiotherapist, of course, was Brian Mulligan. And as I said, I just happened to be in New Zealand taking this uh, program in Auckland. And I met Brian three days later. So I just happened to be there at the time when he discovered this. And he came to, he came to class going, guys, the, the strangest thing happened. Uh, this, this girl comes in, can't bend her finger. Uh, I move it one way, it hurts. I move it the other way, it doesn't hurt. And and while I hold it there, she met her finger and he has no idea what's going on. Like he has no concept. And, you know, and he came up with a, a very crude model to explain this, a very biomechanical model, which again, was kind of quaint. We now look at that. No different than McKenzie accidentally extended a patient and came up with a model of the disc. Again, it's a nice model that probably doesn't explain what's going on. And so now we're at the stage now where we've been able to investigate this a lot as far as the efficacy. And we're now moving on to the uh, the basic science, the basic pain science about trying to really appreciate more what's going on. So some work's been done. So for instance, uh, work done in the University of Queensland by Pogmali looked at the effect of injecting naloxone prior to doing MWMs for lateral epicondylalgia. Now, if you're not aware, naloxone is the strongest opioid inhibitor. So if someone is, is dying of fentanyl overdose, you, you inject naloxone and you save their life because it completely blocks the uptake of all opioids. And the injection of naloxone prior to an MWM for uh, lateral epicondylalgia has no effect on the success of the MWM at all. So we know it's not an opioid. It's not just simply, you know, endorphins being released. We know it's not that because if it was, well, then they wouldn't have had the effect. So we're kind of going through a bit of a process of elimination. Okay, well, we know it's not some sort of bone out of place thing. That doesn't make an awful lot of sense in today's world. It, it doesn't seem to be this opioid uptake explanation. And I think, again, Jim's really touching more on it. It's And these are going to be the hard questions to really answer. And that is, it's, it's like getting that, that patient buy-in and, and that engagement with the patient. And how do you measure that? And I have no idea how we're actually going to be able to tease that apart. As far as the mechanisms of, of why this works, we've gone through the, the studies to say, yes, it, it is highly effective. Yes, we've got several meta-analyses and uh, systematic reviews. Uh, one just currently uh, published by one of our teachers from the Indian subcontinent, Kiran Sapute on uh, MWNs for the shoulder. So we know that, again, it has high levels of efficacy and it's being incorporated into clinical practice guidelines. But we're now on to the basic science of trying to understand a bit more about why. And I'll be honest, we're not anywhere close to that answering that question. And it, I think to, to move beyond it, it's beyond it in the sense of, I don't know how you can ever answer it. Because looking at, I love that Melzac, it's just a model of pain perception, but it's never just about the afferent input, right? It's still that combination of that cognitive related situation, that context that the person's walking in with. So I, I like it because it, it taps into that sensory input of manual therapy, but it still has to go through that locus of control with the patient. They're still in charge. And when you combine those two together, you're reducing threat to the nervous system. It, it's the, it just changes. Rather than saying, move through the pain, move through the pain, you're safe, you're not going to get hurt, which we'll have to do at some point in the juncture with someone else. But if we have that right patient 
and we can apply that accessory input, that afferent input, at the same time as that cognitive piece, that's the sweet spot. That's the key is that locus of control and that um, that patient driving the process. That's totally different. And that's the magic where these two things meet. Right. So it's very interesting that we have discovered this thing and we found that it worked amazingly on many people on many different conditions. But we're still in a stage of trying to figure out exactly the mechanisms. But as Jim, you said, you put it rightly, it, it is probably a combination of many factors, which is very realistic in our world because patients do come in with all of the whole person, you know, the cognitive piece, the biopsychosocial piece. So I was reading uh, quite a few systematic reviews and research on MWM, and one of the things that was really interesting to me was how MWM was able to affect pain processing even. So a 2019 study on NEOA showed that approximately an hour of mulligan led to immediate and short-term, which is in that study, two days, improvement in pain, intensity, knee range of motion, strength, time up and go, and even reducing pain pressure threshold at the knee and at the shoulder, which is pretty much a widespread hypoallergesic effect that MWM was able to show. How do you interpret this finding? Do you have any idea why? I think it's just, again, tapping back into that neural matrix of pain. And some people don't like the term. I'm not sure why. You're just creating a window of opportunity, right? We don't stay into mobilization with movement forever you've created the environment now where the threat's down the nervous system isn't guarding and that client that patient can now go and do that movement that hurt before they've got this period of time this window where they can then with repetition and gradual graded loading graded movement whatever we want to call it we can start to then get them to a place that they couldn't before. So we don't stay with mobilization with movement. We still get on to the exercise, the strength, the neuromuscular stuff, the motor control, whatever we want to call it. Now they go and retrain that nervous system. Like Jack talked about, they had a frozen screen. Somehow there was a control-alt-delete. Now the therapy is not more control-alt-delete. The therapy is run Windows 11 now, right? You were running Windows 98. The therapy is still the exercise, the neuromuscular stuff to get the right program running. Yeah, you know, I want to speak just for one quick sec on, on just you know, a little bit about, for, for your listeners, about you know patient selection. So you know this idea that, that you know, Mulligan's going to fix everything. Well, of course not, you know. And this is one of our problems as physiotherapists. We tend to be bandwagon jumpers and whatever the new fad is, we go, oh, there's the answer to everything. There it is right there, right? And of course, we don't want that to see that to happen because if you jump on that bandwagon, sooner or later, it's going to bump you off. And so, you know, don't you dare call me a mulligan therapist because I'm not, neither is Jim and neither is Brian Mulligan, by the way. Okay. And I don't really enjoy the toolbox analogy. It is a modality that has its efficacy for certain clinical presentations and and for me, it's when the patient is, first of all, safe, okay, so medically, mechanically safe, so that's our first duty of care, take a proper history and physical examination and, and make sure we eliminate those red flags and make sure the patient is appropriate to be with us. 
Secondly, do they have a functioning paired activity? Uh, they can't, again, grip, they can't turn their neck, they can't flex their knee. And, and most importantly, what's the limiting factor? So if the patient you know, starts to flex their knee and it just gets to say to 100 degrees and then it just stops and you, know, you, you push on it harder and you ask the patient, well, what do you feel? And the patient goes, nothing. Well, what, you, what you've got is a stiff knee. And so is the mulligan concept, are MWMs necessarily indicated in that particular situation? Well, no, you just got, you have a stiff knee. And so traditional orthopedic manual therapy, you know, described by people like Jeff Maitland, Freddie Coltonborn, Stan Paris, et cetera, uh, James Syriax, is a really good model and system to approach that relatively pain-free stiff joint because it's built around that concept of the stiff joint and you stretch it out. The patient smiles because it doesn't cause them pain. But what happens to say if you got a patient who comes in and they get their knee flexed and you get up to 100 degrees and they say, please stop. But you and your hands feel no resistance. You're not, you have absolutely no resistance at all. The patient's going, no, no, that really hurts. Please stop. If there's no spasm, there's no stiffness, there's no resistance. It's the quote, empty end feel. What are you going to do now? Are you just going to push through the pain and, and make the patient scream? Are you going to say, well, then don't bend your knee? Is that, are either of those going to help that patient to be able to, to flex their knee in a meaningful way? Now, if you can take that knee and do a pain-free mobilization, let's just say it's a internal rotation of the tibia, often works for this, and it's pain-free. And while you maintain that, the patient can now flex their knee right up to their true end range and maintain it there for several seconds. And then you can repeat that repeatedly, adding that load to the, to the tissue would that not be a way to be able to empower that patient to be able to flex their knee themselves later on? I think so. So again, to me, uh, the quick summary of if you said to me, Jack, in five words or less, what is the mulligan concept give? What does it give you? And it gives me something very simple. It gives me R2 without P1. I get end range loading and the patient smiles. I move from being that physioterrorist and the patient again now builds that trust that Jim talked about, that therapeutic alliance, because I'm not going to hurt them. And so they trust me and they are therefore, they'll probably trust me and do their exercises at home. Why? Because I've shown them that we can do this in the clinic and therefore you should be able to do it at home as well. Whereas if it hurts in the clinic, well, it's going to hurt at home and unlikely they're going to do it because again, who wants to hurt themselves? And, and I, I don't have the reference, but, you know, uh, there's this Dutch study that was done a few years ago. You know, if we look at patient compliance to home programming, it's about 17%. Only 17% of patients actually do their home program. And why? Well, one, they're lazy and, and maybe they didn't get shown it properly, but often it's because it hurts. And so why would they do something that hurts? So but if you can, again, get them that function without pain, there's at least a somewhat better chance of them doing a home program. And we funded a, a huge study published in the British Medical Journal on lateral epicondylalgia, and it compared eight sessions of MWMs compared to two intraarticular corticosteroid injections or wait and see and doing nothing. And they followed them over a one-year period. So they did eight treatments over an eight-week period and then followed them for a year. Now, the outcomes for pain, function, grip strength, et cetera, vastly superior for MWMs over um, both weight NC as well as corticosteroid injections. But the interesting thing is 
that two things. One, the corticosteroid injections had almost a 70% recurrence rate. So they had tremendous relief for six weeks and then their pain came right back. And the wait and see who are told, well, don't do anything. Well, they didn't wait and see. They went and got massage. They got acupuncture. They went to other practitioners. They've got injections. They, they didn't wait and see. So why would people not comply? Why would they not follow directions? Well, because they have pain and they're looking for a solution to their pain. So again, if we're looking for that idea of reducing dependency, building compliance, building adherence, building that therapeutic relationship, it's all to, to me, if you can demonstrate right here, right now in the clinic, that you can bend your knee without pain, grip without pain, turn your neck without pain, then I believe there's a much higher level of uh, likelihood that the patient will then move on to independence recovery function and return to normal activity day living. And is that not what we're supposed to be doing as physios at the end of the day? You mentioned that study that had followed patients with lateral elbow pain for a year and patients who received MWM had superior outcomes after a year compared to those who had the injections versus self-management or whatever they want to do. What about MWM produced long-term effects over the course of a year, what tools did MWM give these patients that would help them have superior outcomes for that long? I think it's the willingness and ability to self-manage and return to function. Because again, you abolish their pain immediately uh, in those eight treatments. And therefore, um, th those eight treatments, the effect of those eight treatments probably lasted a week or two. But again, that, that window of opportunity has been purchased that they then start to return to normal function and comply with their home program. So again, the, the long-term outcomes are completely dependent on the patient's willingness to comply with self-management, avoidance of aggravators, but also building that self-efficacy that that activity uh, of say grip or knee flexion, whatever it may be, is safe. It, it is not gonna do them harm. And your pain modality and your movement modality are the same thing. So it's, one thing right and that's easy it's effective and it's and it works so it's easier to stick with and comply with and um and and ultimately it's the story we tell people that helps them be that creator or that victim and it's that part of the the, the success with it is the story that goes with it and that's the the empowerment piece and if i can do a technique and i don't have the pain, that's very empowering. And I'm going to move on to the home program with a lot more confidence. Yeah, I'm just going to give a shout out to Jim and because uh, he's actually got something that he wants to share with you and, and myself. It's my first time hearing this as well. But uh, Jim, I'm not going to say the scientist. Uh, I'm just the old guy. Uh, Jim, Jim's, Jim's the, heart, the heart and soul. Uh, Jim's the poet. So go ahead, Jim, please. Oh, you want me to, want me to share a poem? Yes. Oh, yeah. At the end of the day, when we look at what makes a great clinician, what number one, what do patients want from us most? Study after study after study, it's empathy, right? And, um, and empathy is a response, not something we do. It's, it's a how. And one of the best ways to enhance or boost empathy, to be able to meet people where they are, to suspend that judgment, to truly be in that space as two people on the same team, poetry really taps into that. And uh, you look at med students 
who go in with great empathy scores, by the time you're you're done your clerkship, the empathy scores are awful because people are dying. We've taken human beings and made them digestive systems and, you know, circulatory systems. We've ripped them apart and added all this separation. So I'll throw a poem in. I wasn't, I didn't write one for this episode, but at the end of the day, change only happens at the speed of trust. And the, the wings of trust, our empathy is the gate, but it's all about human connection. If content, what's wrong with the person, their diagnosis is king, context is queen. The kingdom we live in is communication and conversation. And the currency of that kingdom is human connection. At the end of the day, we're in the people business serving therapy. We're not serving therapy, right? We're in the people business serving physiotherapy. We're not in the physiotherapy business serving people. So to me, it's all about connection. So I'll throw this one at you guys, okay? Connection. We meet face-to-face, heart-to-heart. This so-called science, a powerful art. In the sweet mystery of vulnerability, the questions arise. Voice, hands, posture, eyes. Beyond mere words, a language is spoken. We meet at this altar of shared emotion. Safe in the arms of empathy, bathing in this energy of being seen, weaving a bond of intimacy given and received. We meet at this crossroads of convergence, of who we are, of where we are, a dance of meaning, both to follow, both to lead. The fruit of relationships grow from the seed of connection. And that's basically mobilization with movement in a poem. So there you go. That's great. Thanks for sharing. So a while ago, you talked about how Mulligan MWM is really empowering self-management from the patient's end. Do you prescribe any MWM exercise or self-mobilization or what what self-management can patients do? Oh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people can do their own mobilization with movement. They just have to be, be shown. And, and often you, you, you could just tell a patient, okay, try this, try this, try this, try this, but it, it's a lot quicker for you to do it. And, and to me, half the time, my actual hands-on therapy is just a series of experiments to find the optimal pain-free pathway and then be able to show the patient how to do that. And it's quicker for me to do it than the patient. All right, I, I want you to do an anteromedial glide of your tibia in a relationship. The no, patient has no idea what you're talking about. And so again, it's a lot more econ- time economical uh, and build, again, building trust because the, the, you know, if, you, if you've got to do like 15 different experiments to finally find the answer, the patient's going, what is with this cloud? Does he know what he's doing or not? Um, and so uh, again, um, once you've found the uh, mobilization that is pain-free, and facilitates pain-free function, then nine times out of 10, the patient can do that themselves or you you show a spouse how to do that uh, themselves as self-treatment. And then at the end of the day, you then can move on to, you know, traditional physiotherapy principles that the patient can then do themselves that you would typically do with any of your patients. And so by all means, you can use an MWM self-mobilization, but nine times out of 10, the patient can just simply move on to normal functional activities 
once you've cleared that pain-free function. Is it possible that one just simply can't find a treatment plane that is pain-free? Yeah, you don't win all the time. You can't win them all, but um, we win enough that we're still around. Again, uh, Jim writes poetry. I, I write articles. So here's a, an article I wrote uh, some time ago, a quote from it. So, um, and, and there was an article I wrote when I first came back from New Zealand and trying to share some of this uh, information. It was the name of the article was The Mulligan Concept, The Next Step in the Evolution of Orthopedic Manual Therapy. So here you go. Mulligan's concepts allow us to safely apply end range techniques that are under the full control of the patient, remain at end range for several seconds with no pain, and provide a unique mechanical receptive afferent input to the central nervous system. We may now attain similar results to that achieved by spinal manipulation without the associated risks. In short, Mulligan's concept is the manual therapy equivalent of Control-Alt-Delete. We reboot the client's nociception system such they no longer perceive the previously painful comparable sign as a sensitizing maneuver. The therapist may now proceed on to recovery of mobility and function using traditional physiotherapy principles. I wrote that in 2006 uh, when I was the editor of the orthopedic division uh, journal. So to me, that encapsulates what, what we're trying to do here. How do you explain what you're doing and all the experiments with patients? You know, first of all, you know, it's interesting to, to say this, um, and you may not believe it, but patients don't usually ask an awful lot. They go, well, that's cool. So not an awful lot of patients. So can you explain to me the neural physiology of the Golgi tendon organ? And, and so that doesn't tend to come up an awful lot. If patient, if a patient asks me, it depends on, you know, on their background, their educational level, how you know, their, their, their level of appreciation, but I often will use analogies. Um, like, you know, it's kind of like a stuck drawer. We're just kind of helping it to get moving again. Or, you know, I might say, so look, we're just going to guide it through a pain-free pathway. Um, most people, well, well, that makes sense. And try to leave it at that because I don't know the answer. And I can make up some sort of a lie to them. But what we don't want to do is start to build, the, I think the, the big thing is we don't want to build this and reinforce this traditional biomechanical, stiff joint, stuck joint, bone out of place, disc bulging, all that tissue pathology talk. I personally believe that it damages people. And I did something, and Jim will testify to this, one day in, in our practice in London, for whatever reason, I threw out all the models, all the exploding disc models and you know, and, and the torn meniscus models and the shoulder dislocation model. I just, give me all those models and we're just, we're, we're throwing them out. We're just going to put them in the garbage because, you know, showing the patient, because you ever see, see those spine models, the herniated disc is always glowing red. Like, you know, that, that really, you know, helps to take down patients' fear an awful lot, doesn't it? That glowing red disc. And I love those, those models where you flex the spine and the disc suddenly just ruptures out the back and, you know, I mean, like that, that, that gives patients lots of confidence in, in their ability to bend and move. So, you know, we got rid of the models. And, and I think that's one of the best things we ever did is just threw them all out in the garbage and, and just never looked back because I think they harmed patients. So I think the important thing is there's no recipe. A good clinician is a chameleon. And by that, you have no right to be even explaining anything to a patient if you didn't ask them what their expectations are, what their beliefs are, 
If you don't know the context, you can't formulate that explanation. So you can only come at it knowing what they already believe and what they already are expecting because the wrong story, it's a stone rolling down a hill. So you really have to individualize that, what you're explaining. And like Jack said, you're not lying. You're not selling crap, but you've got to explain it in their context to really be able to meet them where they are. So I don't think there's a, a recipe other than I stay away from, to me, I will not go deeper than it's a strain unless I have to, right? And all I'm doing is just helping them so they can move something better, right? I'm helping them help themselves. Let's look at just something as simple as uh, someone who walks downstairs and has pants in front of their knee. Now, now, when I was a student at U of T in, in the Stone Age, um, and yes, a tablet was the thing, same thing that Moses brought down from the Sinai and used a chisel and hammer on it. We called that thing this really fancy schmancy Latin name called chondromalacia patella. Boy, I tell you, you have no idea how many patients that made. They felt so much better. Oh, don't worry. It's just chondromalacia patella. And then sometime, you know, um, in the, the, the late 90s, 2000s, we moved on to the, from that to call it retropatellar pain syndrome. What do we call it now? Anterior knee pain. So when I'm personally going to become the editor of the ICD-11, I, I want to take that job because I want to put in a new diagnosis. It's called boo-boo, okay? An ouchie. Because we have, let's be honest, let's stop the line. Nine times out of 10, we have no idea what's wrong with the patient in front of us. And does it really matter if we have a way to be able to help them to be able to safely and effectively return to normal function. But this pathoanatomical medicalization um, that we seem to be traveling down, it's time for us to stop because that's not the model. We, we're, we're supposed to be working in the international classification of function. And so why don't we take a functional approach, which is you have a painful impairment of neck rotation. Let's help you to be able to rotate your neck without pain. That's a functional impairment model, isn't it? as opposed to a pathoanatomical disease model. And that's, I think, where we belong, is back into that approach and stop hyper-medicalizing and disabling our patients with those sort of, with that type of language. Mm. I'm sure both of you have many successful stories with using M&M when indicated with patients. And that's why both of you are so passionate about it. I was wondering, was there ever a time when MWM was indicated, was used, led to immediate great outcomes, but didn't lead to long-term outcomes, or even the patient had worsening of symptoms by the next session? Yeah, all the time. And by that, I mean from a not, not so much the worsening of symptoms, but just the no long-term change. And, you know, basically... I can improve somebody's hip internal mot uh, rotation probably quite easily uh, and effectively with these techniques, but I'm doing them no service if after two or three visits, that hasn't afforded them much greater mobility that they've kept on their own that then's allowed them to move better. So you can still see because of the neurophysiology, you can still get 
change in session, but you don't maintain it, then that person's beyond our control to be able to assist with those techniques. And we're on to other things, or it's an indicator that they probably may be heading for joint replacement or some other type of intervention. That brings right back to that acronym from Mulligan, PILL. It's got to be pain-free. It's got to be instantaneous. And it's got to be long-lasting. And if it's not, it's not indicated. It's just that simple. So again, the pain-free, that takes you like three seconds. All you got to do is says, is there pain? The patient says, no, that's easy. Instantaneous, an improvement in function that you can observe quite clearly, increased grip strength, increase knee motion, et cetera, that's observable and measurable. The long lasting might take a couple of days, but if after say three, four sessions, you're not getting that durability of outcome, well then either uh, the technique is not indicated at that time or there's other confounding factors. Maybe the person isn't doing their home program. Maybe they're doing something totally counterproductive to, uh, to the therapeutic outcome. And so what it does for me is this, okay, what's going wrong here? Like, is it my fault? Is it the patient's fault? Is it the knee's fault? Uh, and it could be any of those or a combination of those. And so let's, let's find out what we need to do to problem solve that. But again, it doesn't take you long to figure out whether or not the techniques are indicated or not uh, with this system. And that's, again, another one of its benefits. It's not, well, let's do 40 treatments and see if you're any better or not. Uh, no, let's do two and see if you're any better or not. And again, if it's not, then you can redirect the patient to further investigation uh, to find out, okay, is there an underlying structural pathology that has to be dealt with in the medical system? Or uh, again, is it, again, the patient has, has, has low compliance? Or again, despite all the treatment, <laughs> I do this analogy all the time, um, you know, the patient goes to the ophthalmologist and they got a red swollen eye and oh, look, oh my goodness, it's, it's horrible. Look at that red swollen eye. And the ophthalmologist gives them this, these drops and the patient puts the drops in and they say, wow, wow, that feels really good. And the ophthalmologist says, okay, well use these drops every day for the next two weeks and come on back. Now the, the patient comes back after two weeks and the eye is still really red and swollen. And the, the, the ophthalmologist says, well, what's going on? Are they, these are the right drops and are you using? Oh, absolutely. I use them all the time. Well, is there anything you do? Yo, I stick my finger in my eye constantly. Well, you know, I mean, maybe you should stop sticking your finger in your eye. That might also help. And so it's not just, you know, what we do, but it's that education of the patient about some of the aggravating factors that they may be doing. So someone, again, who's got neck pain, but continues to sleep on their stomach. Um, I'm sorry, the likelihood that you're going to get a durable outcome with that patient is kind of low, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I can see how the context and communication and education is really important around this concept of mulligan. With everything, right? We do, like we'll use mobilization with movement. We'll use mobilization. We'll use other things a percentage of the time during the day. But we communicate and connect with 100% of people 100% of the time. So everything is contingent on the communi- communications, the kingdom, right? Without that, everything else is just player. So pain-free is a very important idea in the Mulligan concept. I suppose some would come along and ask, would this have a risk of inducing the idea that someone should never move with pain? and become pain avoidant. That's the whole story piece. And that's the communication piece on what the meaning of pain is, right? Is it pressure? Is it, you know, we always spend time as a therapist, not just with Mulligan, with anything, 
showing what's hurt versus harm. Pain is our friend, right? It's not an evil thing. So it's the story I think that we need to spend the time with and educate people on the safety of it and when it's an issue and when it's not an issue. That's that's the hallmark of it. So how is this pain education come in harmony with the emphasis of no pain with mobilization? So no pain would be the pain they came in with. So no pain would be, it hurts to move my shoulder. I can't get past the pain. We can do a technique and it helps them get past that pain. So I, I understand what you're saying with the no pain, but it would be defining that just in a little bit of a context on what's safe pain, what's not safe pain with respect to are you going to do yourself more damage? Or is that okay to kind of work with a little bit if it's a bit of pressure, if it's a little bit of um, dental noise? Yeah, when we say no pain, what we're really suggesting to the patient is we want abolition of your typical symptom of complaint, your primary symptom of complaint. You may feel still some stretch. You may feel some muscle contraction. You may experience effort. Those are, you know, and, and those are normal. We all do when we lift our arm, et cetera. We feel effort. We may feel stretch at the end of range. But the patient who experiences symptoms that prevent them from being able to elevate their arm, say, beyond 90 degrees, um, and it reproduces, say, anterior shoulder pain. And we can say, oh, uh, if that's your rotator cuff. It's torn. And then I can go down that rabbit hole of pathoanatomical uh, discussions of the patient, never lift your arm over your head. Well, if we just did a posterior glide of, of the shoulder and then demonstrate to the patient that, well, look, you can lift your arm fully over your head, but you have now some effort, you know, uh, with that. You may have some discomfort with that. You may have end range stretch. That's normal. That's healthy. That's good. That's the sort of experience that you want to have and see how the other side, you feel the same thing, don't you? Exactly. So that's when we say no pain, it's we want abolition of the symptom of complaint that the person brought, came in with, we turned that, again, that client-specific impairment measure, the reproduction of their symptom of complaint and their functional impairment. So it's not just simply alleviating the pain, it's alleviating the pain and empowering the function at the same time. Yeah, so coming to the end of the interview, audience may still have questions about uh, the concept. How do our audience learn more about MWN? Uh, well, the couple again, we resources we've referenced there, the um, International Mulligan Teachers Association um, website, bmulligan.com. And there's several videos there that are available about the clinical reasoning. I did one on clinical reasoning. Toby Hall is just about to publish one. On, on cervicogenic headaches. So there's some really good resources at bmulligan.com. We also, Jim and I, have our own website, uh, mulligancanada.com, where we list, uh, again, various resources as well as our courses. Well, we run courses throughout Canada, from BC through to Nova Scotia. Our courses run on a, a hybrid system. You do a pre-course video modules to try to appreciate a little bit about the historical background, the, the clinical reasoning. And then our live face-to-face -face courses are, are really focused a lot on skill development in the sense of trying to help people to be efficient in their application of these techniques. Uh, I don't think there's necessarily a wrong way to do these techniques, as long as it's pain-free, they're just ways that are more efficient. You know, the way you stand, the way you put your hands on the patient, 
uh, you just seem to get a better outcome by doing it a certain way. And, and again, then being able to have somebody mentor over you, observe you and say, hey, that, that looks really good, but maybe move your head a little bit more lateral. See what that feels like for you and the patient. No, hey, guys, great. Well, that's better. Good. Why don't you try that a bunch of times and really build that psychomotor skill and, and motor learning and be able to apply that on Monday morning. The big thing that I really like to emphasize is, again, that clinical reasoning process. Because again, you cannot approach this system of orthopedic manual therapy using your traditional orthopedic manual therapy clinical reasoning of the stiff joint, the tight joint, the restricted joint. If you go at it thinking that way, it doesn't matter what you do with your hands, uh, you will fail because you're approaching it from a completely opposite paradigm of I got to stretch it out. I got to make it move more. Whereas we're saying, why don't you help it to move better rather than move more? And we know it's better because it doesn't hurt. That's not so hard, is it? Mm-hmm. What are some future directions of Mulligan, I guess, specifically Mulligan Canada? Oh, just again, I think we've noticed a bit of a change post-COVID on just being able to reach people. And um, I think what we've seen is just a little bit of disengagement with continuing education. And and now things are starting to kind of come back. And yeah, what's in it for us? We're two passionate clinicians that have seen a lot of stuff you know jack's been a physio for 45 years i mean 45 years you know i'm 33 years and uh, we've got someone that works with us eric schmidt who will be joining us as as a teacher and um we're just kind of looking to kind of grow with the best practice research on this the best practice research on care how all that's the hermeneutics of creating meaning. And we're lifelong learners. That guy you see on the screen with me, he sits and reads articles all day. He invests in himself to grow like I've never seen another therapist. And I don't know if I'll see another one. I might get teared up here. Um, mm-hmm. That guy was at work at six in the morning and he went home at six at night. Was it a bit too much? I don't know. But if you were his patient, you were damn lucky. So you've got... People that are just willing to continue to grow and keep learning to create the best product that we can put out there to help people basically help their patients better. And that's what we're all about. Help people get better and kind of have fun doing it. So that's what we'll keep doing. Connect, create meaning, make a difference and matter to people every day. For some of the research-minded audiences, what are some gaps in research on MWM that needs to be filled. As teachers, we, we fund a lot of research and we spent a lot of time um, doing funding research at the uh, the ankle for restoration of ankle mobility, particularly dorsiflexion. Then we moved on to the elbow for lateral elbow pain and now progressed on to doing a lot on the shoulder. We just published again, a systematic review of the, the articles. And we also did a lot of work with Toby Hall with headaches. Uh, so we've been trying you know, kind of take it like one area at a time. I think we've done a pretty good job uh, overall with the majority of the body as far as a regional perspective. Uh, again, I think what we really need to do is, again, again, start really looking at that basic science to try to understand a little bit more about uh, about the, the why, be able to answer those questions to our colleagues a bit better. I think the other real thing is continue to break down the barriers because 
Uh, again, when I first came back from New Zealand in, in 1986, this was not accepted. This, this was not something that was appreciated. This was not something that, oh, that sounds great. Tell us more. No, absolutely not. Like quite the opposite response of, of, I received. Now, that might have also been a little bit about the way I was saying it too. So I'll take as much responsibility there. But the, again, what we're seeing now is more acceptance and integration of these techniques into curriculum at the entry to practice level. We, we'd love to. We do student engagement evenings on a regular basis, and, and we'd love to work with um, the academians who are teaching these interventions to the entry to practice groups, but not just simply the, the mechanics of how to, but again, making sure that it's being taught in the right context of that therapeutic alliance and neuropain science, and, and not just the traditional stiff joint, stretch it out approach, which does, again, have its place. And so again, for me, I think the, the future is really fulfilling our mandate, which was getting into the schools and making it the manual therapy approach of choice in Canada at our physio schools. Um, and we'd be happy again to work with any of the academians who, uh, who listen to this uh, podcast. Before we really wrap up, any final words? I'll also do a shout out to you, Tiffany. Um, you're a powerhouse. I, I met you some time ago and, and we've met at different conferences and that. And so um, I think that again, my big shout out is just to people like you, you. You make me proud to be a physio. There you go. Yeah. And I'll echo that. I mean, you're not the, you don't need to stand in line to be the leader of tomorrow. You know, that's the bad, the beauty of this profession. You get to be the leader of today. You're only going to make it better and you're already leaving it better than you found it. So Thanks for stepping forward and being a leader right off the get-go. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll say one last thing and then I'll shut up. I'll try. On Monday morning, I don't have to go to work. I get to go to work. And if you have as much fun in your career as I've had in mine and opportunities to learn from great people and, and help a lot of people to be able to fulfill their optimal function and in their life, then you too will be able to say the same thing. It's physiotherapy is one of the greatest professions out there. And we are so lucky to be able to help people um, on a day-to-day -day basis with the tools that we have. So again, you too will be able to say that you get to go to work. Absolutely. A hundred percent stand with that. I get to be a physio. What a privilege. Thank you so much, Jack and Jim, for your time and staying up pretty late today for this episode. I hope audience have a great time listening to this and find inspiration from this. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Paincast. I hope you found this episode on the Mulligan concept to be intriguing and thought-provoking. To support our podcast, please subscribe and rate the podcast on Spotify or Podbean and share it with your network. Stay tuned for future episodes on pain and physiotherapy. Thank you.